Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, great to have you with us on the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And Jim, it's not a double-fisted good martini. I think we can argue that this is a triple triple-fisted good martini. In fact, uh, you know, it could be all three martinis if we really wanted it to be, but it's just a really, really good one. Uh, Yesterday, uh, President Biden actually doing the right thing, uh, tweeting out, I support D.C. statehood and home rule, but I don't support some of the changes the D.C. Council put forward over the mayor's objections, such as lowering penalties for carjackings. If the Senate votes to overturn what the D.C. Council did, I will sign it. Now, this is a major reversal for Biden. Just a few weeks ago, before the State of the Union address, he said he was all for home rule, and he actually opposed the Republican legislation in the House that started all this, uh, saying that, you know, D.C. had the right to make its own laws and so forth. So some say, uh, like if you go to the the White House podium, and Corinne Jean-Pierre, just what the the president's tweet says there, that uh, he he changed his mind because Mayor Muriel Bowser never liked the legislation, and she just got overridden. Others say, now, thoughts on Capitol Hill really changed here, and Biden eventually went along because of the assault against Democratic Congresswoman Angie Craig by a guy that had been charged with a lot of stuff over the years and never really prosecuted very vigorously. Here's what she told CBS uh, News back then. I got attacked uh, by someone who the District of Columbia um, has not prosecuted fully over the course of almost a decade, over the course of 12 assaults before mine that morning. And so I I think we have to think about how how in the world can we make sure that uh, we're not just letting criminals out. I mean, it, it wasn't even in every instance that he got 10 days or 30 days. Many times the charges were completely dropped before any justice was achieved at all. Uh, Jim, you and I like to talk about Occam's razor. I think this uh, change of heart also might have had something to do with Lori Lightfoot losing 83% of the vote in Chicago and Biden thinking about running for re-election here. So uh, uh, all of this is uh, pretty good news. And we'll talk about the third part of this in a minute. But uh, Biden, for whatever reason, is lurching to the right move here. Yes, I, I was going to. This broke shortly before I appeared on uh, the daily version of Meet the Press with Chuck Todd yesterday. And I was fine talking about it. I was like, ah, you know, this is a D.C. story. Is this really going to be that big a deal? And as things have played out, I think this is going to be a big deal, in part because the president, if, if you know, look, this is crime is an issue that still splits the Democrats down the middle. There are still a ch- bunch of Democrats who believe in restorative justice and not just you know, criminal justice reform in the sense of, say, an anti-recidivism program in prisons, but basically this idea, oh, no, no, the penalties are too harsh. Christine Rosen wrote for this National Review in November very well. She said that certain Democrats talk about crime as if it's a problem that you, the law-abiding citizen, have done to the criminal instead of the other way around. That somehow you have done something wrong to these people and they have no choice but to mug you, rob you, attack you, carjack you, etc., now, the again, the president's explanation doesn't make much sense. Bowser has had problems with this legislation for quite some time, one part being the reduction of the mandatory sentences um, and the lowering of the minimum sentences. But also, she makes a very good point that this wants to give uh, everyone who is charged with a misdemeanor that could carry prison time 
a right to a trial by a jury. Now, that may seem like a very nice idea in theory, except the problem is the D.C. courts are really backed up. And if you enact this change, all of a sudden, there are going to be a whole lot more cases that have to go to a jury. And Bowser is like, look, this our system just isn't built for this. You're going to end up with, coupled with the bail provisions of this uh, reform, you're going to basically have a whole lot more criminals out on the street waiting trial uh, where they can go out and commit more crimes. If you're in a tough spot like the president is, half your party or roughly half your party is on one side and the other half of the party is on the other side, look, you're going to really irk somebody one way or the other, but you better make your decision early. And the last thing you want to do is let 173 House Democrats, that's about 81% of the caucus, take the stance, no, <laughs> this provision is fine. We believe in home rule. There's nothing in this uh, bill that is so serious that we as Congress should step in. And then after they've taken that vote, turn around and say, yes, I, President Biden, I agree with the Republicans on this one. I believe in home rule. I believe in D.C. statehood. I believe that, you know, District of Columbia officials should make their own decisions, except in this case. This is a terrible idea and we're going to step in and overrule them. Uh, people will point out it's not particularly consistent or principled on that. And if the D.C.'s judge council's judgment can be overruled in this case, it doesn't seem so outrageous to overrule it in other cases. National Republican Congressional Committee is is breaking out the party hats. I think a lot of people argued this is Biden providing cover for other Senate Democrats who didn't want to vote on this, which is all makes perfect sense. Um, the other little cherry on top is that apparently this decision was announced and nobody in the White House bothered to reach out to Muriel Bowser, the mayor of D.C., or anybody else on the D.C. Council. Look, if you're going to disappoint your allies, a little call to give them a heads up will do a go a long way. And apparently the Biden team couldn't do that either. Exactly. And Jim mentioned 173 Democrats following the president's lead, I guess, or maybe they just really do agree with home rule, saying that, no, we don't think that we should override these changes to limit penalties for violent felonies. It's just incredible. I mean, they should have been uh, in support of reversing this anyway. And so I don't really have a lot of sympathy for these people, but they thought they were in lockstep with the administration. And now you've got a ready-made television ad against every single one of these people. Congressman Smith is going easy on carjacking. And it's, it just yeah. writes itself. And Even so the, President I, Biden thought this, you know, was, <laughs> it's, it's, it's ready-made. The National Republican Congressional Committee uh, statement said, you can just picture the ads already, which to me suggests they're already working on them. Um, and again, you know, this will protect some Senate Democrats. But man, you just threw up a whole, threw a whole bunch of House Democrats under the bus. And uh, ironically, running someone over with a bus is one of the crimes that gets a lesser penalty under this new law. <laughs> And so they're feeling betrayed on the Democratic side of the House side of Capitol Hill. And Jim, hopefully, maybe even a fourth uh, a nice aspect to this martini, hopefully this salts the earth in terms of D.C. statehood. Mm. I mean, if you've got a city council putting this kind of swill out there as actual policy, they're obviously not ready for prime time. So let's, uh, let's just shelve that for perpetuity. I was going to say, if nothing really moved on it while Democrats had control of Congress, it was not likely to happen anytime soon. But yeah, the other aspect, and this was one of the, you know, bizarre observations on the program yesterday. So, you know, really Congress hasn't intervened in a DC council law in like 30 years. And now it's happened under a democratic president and a democratic controlled Senate. They certainly gave him the opportunity, but uh, I think it uh, is, it's obviously political opportunism as well. You mentioned uh, providing cover for some of those Senate Democrats who can put it over the top. And uh, also, I think uh, what we saw in Chicago is uh, was the final cherry on the Sunday. Meanwhile, Jim, and we obviously hope people are getting well here, uh, we should note, we know that John Fetterman is getting inpatient care for depression. Uh, we now know that Dianne Feinstein is uh, in the hospital with shingles in California, and you just mainly hope that they get better. But just doing simple math, 
there's not a Democratic majority in the Senate right now. It's 49-49, and that makes things pretty darn tricky uh, for Chuck Schumer right now. It does. And it's one of those things where the other thing thing I I was trying to raise in yesterday's program, and Greg, I'm sure you've had these moments. In fact, sometimes we stop and retape because I have these moments. I was discussing John Tester wanting to, you know, bailing with the rest of the party because he's facing re-election. And then I wanted to mention the senator from West Virginia. And the word Joe was in my head. But for the life of me, I could not come up with Manchin. And of course, it's live television and you can't just stop and look at notes and stuff like that. But maybe that's a good segue to, or a preview of a later martini. Yes, yes. We will be getting to that other Joe a little bit later. All right, Jim. Well, we've got one city council that is clueless when it comes to crime, and that would be Washington, D.C., as we just explained. Let's go all the way across to the other side of the country, where crime is now the bad news. And there's some bizarre twists and turns in this story, but Portland, Oregon has been a mess. Antifa's been causing uh, disasters there for years and years now. And it's leading to retailers not really wanting to do much in that town. And two big ones are are showing major signs that they're done in Portland. Uh, Earlier this week, and a lot of this comes to us from uh, Jazz Shaw over at Hot Air, as well as uh, John Sexton. Uh, Jazz Shaw writing earlier this week that Nike made an odd request to Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler that he wants off-duty cops to protect the Nike store in Northeast Portland that's been closed for months because of ongoing retail theft. Well, Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler is now asking Nike to reopen its shuttered store on a limited basis, even though he can't provide uh, the off-duty cops because his police force is reduced because of the defund the police effort from a couple of years ago. Uh, He did offer to maybe send a few more patrols by a little more often. Meanwhile, Walmart, not a small retailer, is done in Portland completely. Walmart CEO Doug McMillan warned in December that the scourge of retail theft might force the company to close stores or raise prices. He then told CNBC Squawk Box, theft is an issue. It's higher than what it has historically been. We've got safety measures, security measures that we've put in place by store location. I think law enforcement being staffed and being a good partner is part of that equation. And that's normally how we approach it. But that's not the case in Portland and therefore Walmart is done. All Portland Walmarts are closing. Jim, I can't even imagine that. And most people can't in a metropolitan area. So uh, here's the results, DC, when you don't uh, actually prosecute criminals. You get to where you have a situation like this in Portland, where the retailers are just absolutely fed up. You obviously have a ton of people who live there, could be a great customer base, could make a lot of money. But when looting is rampant and frequent, you can't make money. And then your community suffers because everybody's got to go. The impetus for this this segment of this martini is what's happening in Portland. But one of the factors in the Chicago mayoral election we talked about earlier this week was not just how bad crime was, but that it was driving corporations out. And heads of corporations were saying, our employees feel safe. That's why we're relocating our headquarters. Um, one of the, you know, by the way, Lightfoot had this spectacularly tone deaf response saying that the uh, CEOs who are making these decisions needed to be more further educated. Okay, you know, look, relocating your corporate headquarters is not something you do on a whim. It's not something you do after seeing one bad, scary uh, report on the local television news, right? This is, these are big, expensive, and permanent changes. Corporations don't do them willy nilly or on a on a you know on a hunch, right? They do the numbers on this. They make a decision like this in part if they you know, like this isn't a matter of, of hallucinations or media perceptions or something like that. And you see this, I think, in just about every major city in the country. If there is a major city in the country that hasn't had 
um, an increase in crime, an increase in violent crime, and a general sense of lawlessness, either in its downtown areas or throughout the whole city. Let me know what that city is, because I'd like to go to it. I think it was last fall I was walking through downtown D.C. And then through the Georgetown neighborhood, M Street, Wisconsin Avenue, places that for, God, as long as I've been here, had always been like major retail shopping districts. Um, people may remember the movie True Lies, where Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, gets chased through uh, one of the little mini malls right down there in Georgetown. Georgetown is like a wealthy part of town. And I'm walking through there, and I'm not going to say half the storefronts were boarded up, but like probably something like 40%. There were just a lot of them. Uh, then you go to downtown, and downtown has vast stretches of this. When you have fewer people in the center of the town, fewer businesses open means fewer people come there. Fewer people come there means fewer people on the streets, which means an atmosphere that is better for the criminals. It's easier to prey on the lone residents and the people who are there. Now, everybody can see this. Everybody can understand this. What is fascinating is how long we go through these long stretches where city officials will insist, no, 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 it's not that bad. And you, the corporation, you're being unreasonable because you're leaving. Now, of course, the corporation's leaving and you know taking their workers out makes the situation worse. But I think the corporations have a fair reason to ask, hey, if you want us to keep working here, we need to know that our employees and our customers and everybody who's else around them is safe. And you, the city managers, you, the mayors, you, the police force have failed in those duties. But, you know, unfortunately, it looks like things are going to get worse before they get better, Greg. All right, Jim, as promised, we're going to talk about that senator named Joe. He's Joe Manchin, of course, of uh, West Virginia. We talked about him yesterday in conjunction with John Tester voting for Republican legislation uh, that would take down a Labor Department rule uh, injecting uh, ESG into investment decisions. Obviously, they're on the right side of this one. But uh, Joe Manchin is also looking ahead to 2024 and not just his own race. Uh, He was on with Neil Cavuto yesterday, I believe, on the Fox Business Channel. And the simple question was, hey, 2024 is coming up. Sure looks like Biden's going to run. Are you supporting Joe Biden? And you would think it would be a pretty simple answer for a Democratic senator. Not so for Joe Manchin. Still don't know officially what the president's plans are for re-election. It looks like he's going to run again. His wife seems to be saying that they might not be on the same page because the president (laughs) hasn't been as unequivocal. But if he were to run again, would you support him? Well, let's just see who's all in the game. I'm not going to say I'm going to support or not support somebody. I want to see and find the best path, the best pathway for America. We've got to get out of the toxic relationships that we have in our political process. Let's just see who's all in the game is not the answer you want to see if you're Joe Biden. So, uh, Jim, I think this is even more evidence that Manchin is trying to uh, uh, ingratiate himself again with the voters of West Virginia. Who knows if it will work? But, uh, you know, if this is where the Democrats are, or at least a, a significant chunk of the Democratic Party, Joe Biden is not entering this re-election campaign uh, real strong, which I guess in some ways is uh, a sliver of a good martini. An easy traffic generating post is to write a column speculating that Joe Manchin is going to change parties. And Joe Manchin, as we've discussed, is a populist. He will occasionally align with the GOP on issues like life, uh, abortion, guns. Uh, he is less a fan of every woke idea that comes down the pike from the rest of the Democratic Party, but we shouldn't overstate it. He's generally a fan of government spending. And of course, he came around on the quote unquote, like it appears when you look at the you know long, arduous fight over the Green New Deal slash Build Back Better, that Joe Manchin's primary objection was the title. The moment they called it the Inflation Reduction Act, a lot of his objections seemed to go away. I'm, I'm exaggerating slightly, but... In the end, he's not that conservative a guy. And yet he is very much at odds and and really loathed by the progressive wing of the party. And he's going to have a really tough reelection bid. 
um, in 2024. He's probably the only Democrat who could hold that seat. It's going to be a presidential year. Probably turnout will be up pretty high. West Virginia, at least in presidential elections, has turned pretty darn Republican. Uh, maybe it's a little less Republican if Trump's not the nominee, but I, I, I don't see DeSantis or any other uh, Republican really losing that state. Now, it's really kind of interesting. I just, it just kind of, you know, you're starting to hear this question. Greg, if, if Joe Manchin became a Republican tomorrow, would he have any problems ever keeping that seat? Yes. Well, <laughs> I think I think he would. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I, I think he came around, if he came around and said, uh, you know, I've negotiated with McConnell and, you know, reached out to the West Virginia Republican Party and said, fellas, I know we've had some disagreements. And yeah, you know, obviously, if he didn't flip, if he flipped now, it wouldn't flip control of the party. Although, considering the absences of Fetterman and Feinstein, maybe it would. Um, I, I just kind of feel like at some point the calculus does change, and he begins to ask himself, "Why do I? How much do I want to stay a Democrat?" I don't think he's going to have. I just kind of feel like that month by month, remaining in the Democratic Party makes less sense for him. And I think the demonstration is that here he is; he's a Democrat, and he can't say, "Yes, I'm going to vote for the president whose le- signature legislation I've helped make reality." That, that seems like a pretty glaring example of this. Now, in the end, who's Joe Manchin going to vote for? He's probably going to vote for uh, the Democrat. He may be very quiet about it. He, you know, he may not do any campaigning for it. He may be kind of grumbling about Biden. But Greg, it just struck me as another indicator that Joe Manchin's previous political identity just may not match up with what West Virginia is willing to accept anymore. And he can't has to pretend, oh, I'm not even sure I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. Now, obviously, we think he probably is, but it just seems kind of indi- an interesting indicator that in the end, Manchin is, you know, wants to see his options, wasn't really do it, can't really come out and endorse it. And again, does it mean he's running for re-election? Yeah, I think it's a pretty good sign to that. Um, because if he was retiring, he could say, no, nah, I'm, I'm fed up with the guy. Or he could say, yes, I love the guy. And he wouldn't have to worry about the uh, consequences either way. No, nah, it's a good point. If he were to switch parties, the reason I, I, I thought it would not work out for him is just thinking of Arlen Specter, who, uh, you know, switched parties from Republican to Democrat after he voted for the stimulus right after Obama got elected and then uh, for uh, Obamacare. And he ultimately didn't win the Democratic nomination just because the other party had built up such an antipathy to him. I don't know if that would be the case for Joe Manchin. What would be interesting, though, is if, uh, you know, he got he flipped and then um, Justice, the governor, uh, also ran for Senate. It would be two former Democrats running as Republicans in West Virginia, which is kind of which is really emblematic of the entire state because when we were kids outside of the massive landslides of nixon and reagan west virginia was a dead cinch lock for the democratic presidential nominee it's amazing look greg in the state of west virginia your options run the gamut from a to b <laughs> man if something weird like that were to happen i wonder if don blankenship then dusts off the old resume and what could then happen well yeah i was gonna say somebody <laughs> needs to stand up to cocaine mitch but here's the thing so let's say that, you know, Manchin says, all right, that's it. I'm going to have a real tough time. I'm coming to Republican. And then if you're Jim Justice and it looked like you had a really good chance of beating Joe Manchin as the Republican candidate running against a Democrat in a state where Democrats are likely to do very badly. I wonder if Justice says, you know what? Fine. I'm a Democrat again. I'm still going to run against you. <laughs> and then Manchin would say, oh, yeah, fine. I'm back to being the Democrat again. We got to be each other in the primary. And just, OK, no, I'm a Republican. And they just go back and forth until primary day. Try to decide. 
Oh, it's like musical chairs. When the music stops, which party are you in? But, uh, oh man, that would be highly entertaining. But we'll see what happens here. But I think we are going to get that matchup now, uh, based on what we're seeing from Manchin and the, the White House catering to him to some extent. So uh be fascinating to watch that matchup. And I think uh, if justice does run, that's obviously the Republicans' best chance to, to grab that seat. But a uh, lot to watch. And uh, Jim, fun way to end the week. See you Monday. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Please subscribe to the podcast if you don't already, and please tell a friend about us as well. Thanks very much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Also, get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. Follow us on Twitter. Jim is at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a wonderful weekend, and join us again on Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch.